0: Hey, everybody, this is Steve Anderson, animation director and storyboard artist, and you are listening to the Skull Rock podcast.
1: Podcast talking all things Disney with your hosts Al John Go and Dave
2: Bossert. Happy, happy, happy holidays, and welcome to the Skullbrock Podcast. If this is your first time checking out the show, welcome. Every week, we talk pop culture and Disney and animation with myself, Al John Go, pop culturist and big Disney fan,
0: alongside Dave Bossert. Dave hi al john how are you and happy holidays to our entire audience um this is a uh pre-recorded show uh and i think <laughs> you don't <we're>, say <laughs> I, I mean hey listen i i'm just gonna tell you tell, tell it like it is right yeah i mean it's it's the holidays and uh we're we're doing our own thing here so uh sit back and relax uh and enjoy exactly
2: we've got joe hale Um, one of our great interviews from early on in the podcast history. So you get to check that out. Talking about Black Cauldron, a film that Dave was uh, very intimately involved in. So I can't wait to uh, revisit that interview. But uh, we do also have some news. Hey, it's post-Christmas and uh, we've got to get into it, right?
3: skull rock podcast ripped from the headlines it's skull rock podcast headline news
2: dave the box office is uh totally back with spider-man you told me earlier that the theaters were still jam-packed
0: yeah you know it's unbelievable al john and uh i believe by the time our listeners hear this uh episode of the skull rock podcast uh spider-man no way home will have crossed one billion dollars at the global box office i knew it i knew yeah it could be i mean it's unbelievable i mean you know hey, listen didn't i say many many months ago that theaters were going to come back theaters were going to bounce mm-hmm, back mm-hmm. You, you have to see a film like spider-man no way home
2: on a big screen Absolutely. And I'm looking forward to it. Got to get some sitters going, but I'm hoping between now and New Year's I'll be able to see it out, you know, in in the way it was meant to be seen. Hopefully on IMAX. Hopefully I'm, I'm keeping my fingers crossed and uh, we'll get a sitter going because, you know, the media screener is nice, but you know, this is going to be much better.
0: <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. You got to see it on a big screen. So, and, and I'm still waiting for that moment to, to sneak into an IMAX theater where it's not packed yeah. and, and see it. So well, uh, looking forward
2: to it. Seems like everything's going great for Spider-Man. I mean, they're, they're planning the next round of a trilogy and, and, They're doing everything they can to keep uh, Tom Holland. And I guess it's really um, everyone else's uh, careers of kind of research after that. I'm not going to spoil it for anybody once again, because I know people still haven't seen it, Um, but you need to go ahead and check it out. It's a very, very well um, put together film. Um, And having said that, um, we also have this interesting thing about uh, a quick note about the uh, Disney inspired um, art at the Met. Can you tell us a little bit more about that.
0: You know, this is this is actually a, a great show. I've heard from some friends who've already gone to see it. It's at the. Um, uh, museum uh, of uh, well hold on a second here because it, it just opened at the Met in New York City it's called Inspiring Walt Disney the uh, The animation of French decorative arts uh, it showcases how historical European design influenced both the animator and those that worked with him the exhibition goes back to the post World War One era uh, and I have to say you know this is uh, the This is a very interesting uh, exhibition. It weaves together uh, historic and classical art uh, with contemporary animation and uh, really puts a spotlight on Beauty and the Beast, uh, which I think uh, deservedly so, as well as Sleeping Beauty and uh, some of the other films in the Disney uh, animation canon. So uh, this is something that if you're in the New York area, Uh, you should absolutely go try try and see if you want to brave the hot zone of omicron which is going on
2: (laughs) absolutely i mean i think it's really cool that they have that miniature room um that they have in that rococo style that they that they have all the gold leaf and the really nice decorative flourishes and things of that and it's a miniature room people can take a look at it and And see, hey, look, this is like, you know, whatever, one-sixteenth scale or whatever it is of that room. And then, of course, the different tapestries and the um, Evan Durrell kind of inspired... uh, you know, paintings and things of that nature. So
0: Yeah, and and also, you know, uh Brian McEntee, who is the art director on uh Beauty and the Beast, uh, you know, talked a little bit about uh in some of the interviews uh about his uh uh referencing uh some of this European art uh for the design, uh especially, you know, the the ballroom sequence in Beauty and the Beast and uh some of the objects, uh, the hall of mirrors and things like that that uh, were, were used as reference for design uh, in, uh, in Beauty and the Beast. And I, I think, you know, look, the, this is great. Anytime you see Disney animation in a major museum, I, I think, you know, it elevates uh, the art form further. Uh, because it is fine art in my mind, you know, yes. Al John. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've always viewed it that way. I mean, when you look at films like Snow White and the Seven Dwarves or Pinocchio, uh, you know, the this is this is high art as far as I'm concerned. And maybe centuries from now, uh, that's how it will really be treated. Uh, so you know, periodically when you do see exhibitions that are put together like this, it really is um, uh, a pat on the back to All those artists that participated in these films over the decades. Right on.
2: Yeah, I think it's an amazing look, and uh, one of these days, uh, well, maybe the exhibit will come back in in certain places. Uh, we'll have to see.
0: You know, I, I I actually, you know, these types of exhibits, I hope they tour. You know, uh, you know, a lot a lot of times, an exhibit like this will go to different regions and and set up at different museums, and I hope it actually comes to Los Angeles, uh, especially um, you know uh, in a year or two when this pandemic has. Uh, Uh, has burned itself out hopefully (laughs) yeah sure thing you know, another thing that maybe
2: has burned out is the chances of Bob Iger returning as <laughs> CEO. <laughs> no. Look at that for a transition, man. No, Happy no, no. Holidays. I love that. I love that. <laughs> right. Um. You know, we reported on this rumor uh, last week. And by the way, last week's podcast was so much fun, by the way, with Kimberly Bouchard. You need to check that out in the archives, Positively Disney Cookbook. But, uh, you, you know, we talked a little bit about that rumor. And it looks like, you know, Bob is continuing to make headlines, talking about streaming services, and Disney Plus needs more content for more people. And it looks like they're doing that solely. I mentioned uh, last week that they're bringing in some ABC that live with the the facts of life and different strokes. And they're bringing in some stuff that normally would be on the Hulu platform. Um, yeah. You know, uh, what do do you think about all that stuff there? uh, Well, you
0: know, I mean, like I said, I think last week, it's an arms race with all of these streaming services. And it's all about getting the best content you possibly can onto your service. And, you know, at this point in time, uh, you know, the the services that are going to be able to, the streamers that are going to be able to uh, spend a tremendous amount of money are the ones that are going to wind up coming out on top. And I think that we're going to go into a period of consolidation with these smaller uh, cable channels and smaller uh, streaming services that are trying to get traction are going to have to combine and merge uh, with others in order to um, uh, get the scale that they need uh, to attract a, a subscriber base that's going to be able to support it, you know?
2: Yeah, they really got a jump start with um, during the beginning of the pandemic because people were looking for content, and they had the killer what you know what we used to call the killer app with the Mandalorian, and now with all the Marvel stuff and the Mandalorian um, coming back, um, it looks like they're primed and ready. You know, let's get some more of that ABC content up there for people to enjoy. You Might as well just leverage everything you yeah. got and, and
0: put it on there. <laughs> And, and, you know, I was going to say Bob Iger uh, did uh, a wonderful uh, interview uh, with uh, CNBC's uh, David Faber, uh, and uh, it was almost it was kind of like an exit interview almost with with Bob Iger, (laughs) you know, because because, uh, you know, this this coming Friday, the 31st of December is is essentially Bob's last day at the company. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all good things do come to an end. And as much as. You know, he I think he was probably next to Walt Disney, probably the greatest uh, CEO to lead the company. Yeah. Uh, I, I really believe that, you know. I mean, yep. he, and he's an incredibly nice guy. And, you know, during his his tenure uh at the company, I mean he did an an amazing amount of stuff. Yep. Uh and and so the interview, you can probably find it on CNBC in their archive, uh, is absolutely worth uh watching. They did the interview uh uh, at Disneyland. And, um, you know, I, th- I think he was reflective and, uh, uh, and also was, was, you know, giving his wisdom uh, as far as, you know, the state of the whole uh, streaming, uh, uh, the streaming landscape goes. Yeah. I think
2: the Iger era, as it were, is definitely one for the books and he's probably in the top 10 CEOs of all time. I think, um, uh, you know, there's a lot has that has been written about his leadership style and not only that, but his, in, including his book, uh, which is a great read by the way. Um, mm-hmm. so absolutely, you know, Bob is, uh, leaving, leaving his uh, chairman uh, seat and uh, the company is, is better I think as a result, um, you know, but once again, hopefully they can also uh, integrate some of the values and things that uh, Walt uh, had uh, moving forward and, and continue on to that. Um, but we'll see. Only time will tell, right?
0: That's right. That's right. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, obviously he's leaving huge huge shoes to fill. Uh, I, you know, I, you, you almost feel bad for Bob Chapek and and future CEOs because uh, they've got they've got a high, high bar to reach.
2: This is true. But e- but I think even if they simply maintain and put the company in a good light, then they are already a step ahead of the game. You know, they could they yeah. have the ability and, and the wherewithal to put the right people in place and to yeah. make the necessary changes. I mean, let's just do, and, let's
0: do it. And, and, you know, the other thing, too, Al John is that uh, whoever the CEO is, they're going to put their own stamp on on their company. And it, it, it'll it'll be time that will tell what their legacy is. Mm-hmm. It's never too late to right the wrongs
2: of whatever is going on. And and uh, hey, Bob has a couple years left on his contract. So let's see what happens. There you go. <laughs> Bob Chapek. That is <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> by, by paycheck. Um, I, I said paycheck. Hey, uh, dark, dark horse. Comics. <laughs> <laughs> hey, dark. Uh, hey, we have to have fun here. Hey, dark horse yeah. comics was sold to a, a giant game um, company called the Embracer group. Uh, Hellboy part of that comic and the umbrella Academy. Um, great streaming on Netflix for the umbrella Academy. Uh, once again, it's what you're saying, Dave, everybody's trying to, gobble up all this content
0: well you know they're they're trying to gobble up uh, uh uh you know ip intellectual property uh you know great uh characters so you know these smaller companies like dark horse who, uh, who have a catalog of characters you know uh they're they're going to be exploited um uh, by larger companies that gobble them up and use that ip uh to create new content
2: Mm-hmm. yeah and part of that content includes the mask so they have the you know they have the ip for the, mask, the old jim carrey stuff and then yeah. time cop as well um so there's a lot of stuff there and the works of um i'm trying to think of what else that they have here but anyway they have a lot of great ip and we'll see what happens maybe they'll make something um of it for all the fans that love that stuff and i for one am one of them um Let's see here. And I know there's a couple other things in here. I think before we get to um, some other news, we have this Jack Sparrow thing about uh, Disney can't sing Pirates of the Caribbean suit over the Jack Sparrow character. The Hollywood Reporter says that uh, a California federal judge found that there's a genuine issue of material fact as to whether similarities between the 2000 spec script and the original 2003 film were merely pirate tropes. Um, this happens a lot, not only in Always. films and TV, but also in music.
0: Yeah. Um, but but I, this is, this is so common. I, I mean, like anytime there's a hugely successful franchise, the, there's people that come out of the woodwork and say, and, and, and try to claim ownership to it. And, and it'll be up to the courts to decide, uh, you know, who's right with this particular one.
2: Yeah. 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 Uh, Uh, who knows who knows how this is going to churn out but uh we'll we'll figure we'll figure it out i mean there's so many pirate tropes if you will that are in these pirate films but i think it can go way back uh, all the way back to uh, the beginning of pirates being captured on film i mean you've got the carefree scallywag you know um you know on the bottle kind of pirate you know this is this is how it is and and that's kind of the caricature of, of what what the pirate is, and in fact, yeah. so much so that they put it into but, the ride,
0: y'all. These the, these are common things, and, and Disney gets hit with these all the time. Uh, I mean they they've got a they've got a building full of attorneys dealing with this kind of stuff because there's always somebody coming out of the woodwork claiming, you know that um, you know their idea yeah I, I mean they've had lawsuits over attractions over you know the parks over films over you know you name it uh there's always somebody coming out and claiming that uh, that was their idea uh
2: you know exactly well last but not least uh, we do have one of our uh, regrets here which is sally ann house the truly scrumptious in chitty chitty bang bang dies at the age of 91 um Broadway actress from Patriot Wagon and My Fair Lady Brigadoon what uh, what makes Sammy run uh, a lot of these classic films and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang was a, a favorite in my house growing up um, Dave, I know you have some memories
0: yeah you know I you know I think that uh, she had an amazing career and what's so wonderful you know when when uh, a, a person like this passes on, is that they leave a body of work behind that people will enjoy for many, many years to come. Uh, And uh, she was really terrific as truly scrumptious in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. And I I find that to be uh, just one of those wonderful films from the 60s. Yeah, absolutely. I know we played
2: it a lot in our house. Um, First of all, uh, big Raw Dahl fan anyway. So it's really cool that um, you've got that, plus it was adapted by Ian Fleming, you know, the writing of Ian Fleming, which we're all fans of from 007, which is really cool. And of course, Dick Van Dyke. So this is a, a really cool film if you've not checked it out but it was kind of like the Disney movie that wasn't a Disney movie, right? <laughs> there you go, exactly. I mean, exactly. it had all those in, things. In,
0: in, in fact, Julie Andrews was offered the the role of truly scrumptious in in, in, in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, yeah. and she turned it down because she felt it was too similar to what she had done in uh, Mary Poppins and some other films she had been in. Absolutely. So, so, uh, the... The... Uh, um, uh, I just uh, lost it. Uh, the The um, uh, Sound of Music, excuse me. Oh yeah, uh, yeah That's yeah, what yeah. I. That's what I was grasping for. Yeah, yeah, the yeah, Sound, Sound of, of Music. music. Hey, you know, Julie Andrews was in The Sound of Music and in Mary Poppins, and yeah. she felt like she passed on this one because she felt like it was it was just too similar. Yeah, she could get typecast. <laughs> yeah, exactly, you know, you know. exactly.
2: But yeah. I get it, I get it. But once again, you know, please check it out. I think uh, once again. Um, just a wonderful actress, Sally Ann House. Uh, she will be missed. Please sit back and enjoy our interview with Joel Hale as we talk about the Black Cauldron.
1: Skull Rock Podcast, interview time.
2: We are so honored and welcomed. Uh, I, I, we are just so honored. To have here not only one of the most amazing animators and visual effects people around, he's been nominated for an Academy Award for The Black Hole, one of my favorite films. Also an uh, animation for Robin Hood, Sleeping Beauty, and of course a producer of The Black Cauldron that also Dave worked on. Please welcome Joe Hale. Welcome to the show, Joe.
1: Glad to be here. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hi, hi, Joe.
0: It's Dave. How you doing?
2: Just doing fine.
0: So, so Joe, to, to start out with, I wanted to kind of put in context uh, for our listeners. This past June, you turned 95 years old. Yes. <laughs> awesome. And, and, and it's unbelievable. You were born in June of 1925, and yeah. you, you were born in Michigan, but you grew up in Indiana. No, no, it's just the opposite. I was
1: born in Indiana. Oh, I grew up in Michigan. (laughs) Yeah, I was born in a little little town. It it wasn't even a town. I looked it up. I Googled it. uh, And uh, now it's just, it's a parking lot. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, literally. uh, It was a... A little little, village? It was a a series of little white one-room shacks. Along a, a, a an onion field. Wow! And uh, my dad. Uh, this was you know during the depression. He was we wheel hoeing onions, and uh, my mother uh, uh, knew when I was due, so she uh, made sure he was out of the house. <laughs> and my mother delivered me by herself. Wow! And then she. Waved a uh, blanket or something, and it got my father's attention. And he came in, and she sent him. She said, "Go get your mother." And he went and got his mother. And she came over and helped her clean everything up.
0: <laughs> wow, that's something but else. I,
1: I uh, <clears throat> lived there till we were uh, till I was four, and then we uh, moved to uh, Michigan, Chelsea, Michigan, a little town about fifteen miles. <clears throat> I think uh, near near Ann Arbor. I think it was east of Ann Arbor, no west of Ann Arbor.
0: And uh, and I understand that you saw uh, Bambi seven times in three days uh, yeah. when it was released. Oh, <laughs> yeah,
1: you know, yeah. To me, that's still my favorite Disney movie of all time. I, I we looked at it just the other day. I hadn't seen it. I purposely stayed. At the, Away from it for several years because I wanted to see if it still had that impact, and it sure did. It was, a, to me, it's still Disney's perfect film.
0: It's one of those movies that has uh, resonated from generation to generation.
1: Yes, and, and we, I, I, I'm going to see it with my two uh, grand nieces, uh,
3: great Grendel.
1: granddaughter.
3: Daughters. Great granddaughters, honey. Great
1: granddaughters in a few weeks when things kind of get back to normal. Oh, good. I want to see it with with them. With fresh eyes. And I can remember sitting during interviews. I remember this one interview with, I think, uh, Tom Leach was, there was. some. I don't know. I don't remember who the guy was, but some newspaper man or something. And they were interviewing my office, and we were talking about art. And I said, well, if I... I got you talking about Bambi. And I said, uh, if I had the to, uh, to make a choice between saving Bambi, the, the negative of Bambi and the Mona Lisa, I I, I know which one I'd take.
2: And <laughs> I remember
1: awesome. seeing uh, the guy from publicity going, oh, kind of wincing. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I believe that and I would.
0: Well, the Disney animated films are works of art, uh, yeah, really. and, and uh, every bit as relevant as, as a painting. Um, but uh, that was when you decided you you wanted you set your sights on wanting to become a Disney animator. Well,
1: you know, I I never I, I never thought that that could possibly ever happen. You know what I mean? I didn't think I had anywhere near the and I didn't <laughs> near the talent of to do, do a Bambi or I didn't really even understand animation and I didn't know the names of any of the animators I didn't and so when I started working at Disney uh Ollie Johnson and all these names of people who had worked on Bambi uh, uh were they were like gods to me you know? Yeah.
0: But before we get to you working at Disney, you uh, you dropped out of high school in 1943 and you signed up with the Marine Corps because of yeah. World War II. Awesome.
1: Yes. Uh, they were, uh, and they had announced that uh, everybody, when you turned 18, you had to uh, sign up uh, the, the the and re- register for the draft. But, you know, and you didn't, and you could. Uh, tell them you wanted the Navy or Marine Corps, or Air Force or whatever, Air Corps. And, uh, but you didn't know if you were going to get it or not. So I wanted to make sure I didn't, I didn't, for some reason or other, I didn't want to go in the army. So I uh, talked to two of my friends. We talked about it. And uh, on a Sunday and the next day, we drove down to Detroit in his dad's car. And uh, we first, uh, Place we came to was Marine Corps, we looked in, and here's these Marines they their dress blues, and you know, so we said, let's, you know, let's try this. I said that. <laughs> 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 let's let's try this, and uh, we went in, and uh, we had to sign, you know, fill out some stuff, sign some papers, and uh, they had to strip down, and they gave you a towel. To wrap around you, and they had a doctor there that gave you a, a, a quick physical. And I remember, what is this little thing going around there?
3: I don't know. I can't get rid of it.
0: <laughs> That's all right. We're, get you, we're getting you we got all you. on this. Oh, okay, you're not yeah.
3: seeing anything.
1: Yeah. Okay. So uh, yeah, I was. Uh, I weighed 119 pounds, and I was five foot eight. So I was really skinny. And uh, so they were, I was going through the physical thing, and the, the uh, doctor said, okay, bend over and spread your cheeks. So I went.
2: <laughs>
0: but for the audience, uh, Joe pulled the uh, uh, corners of his mouth, and he bent over uh, with his mouth open.
1: <laughs> anyway. So I passed the physical, and I took it to the uh, the sergeant, tough-looking old guy. And uh, he looks at that, and he looks at me, and I'm standing there with a towel wrapped around me. And he says, well, you're not exactly what we're looking for, but the the doctor couldn't find anything wrong with you, so I guess you're in. And uh, so that's how I got in the Marine Corps. And, And did your buddies get in as well? Yes. My one got in. Dan Ewald. He was accepted. He was 18. And uh, another friend of mine, Kenny Slocum, uh, didn't pass. He had a slight heart murmur. So he was so mad. He, and the next day he went down and uh, joined the Navy and they took him the next day. He was gone within a few days and we ha- hang around didn't get called up for a couple of months.
0: Wow. And and so you you went into the Marines and you saw action on Iwo Jima uh, in the yeah. Pacific and for, for the audience Iwo Jima is a volcanic island north of Guam it's about halfway between Guam and Tokyo it's just this little spit of of, of volcanic rock out in the middle of the Pacific right
1: Yeah it's I think it's it was uh, I think it was 5 miles long
0: It was like eight square miles. Yeah, eight square miles. Yeah, and
1: uh, at one end was the volcano, and uh, where the famous flag raising
2: took place. A a very famous photo. Uh, I know uh, you've you've uh, signed many a photo of that iconic image. I think some of our listeners may not uh, may not know Iwo Jima, but they do know that that iconic picture.
1: Yes, the famous flag, the most famous picture of World War II. Yes, sir. Yeah. And it was funny, we were had been dug in on the beach because we couldn't go inland because of the heavy fire that, for the first three days. And uh, we moved up to the next to the first airport. And uh, I was digging in. We had to fill sandbags and dig these 105 uh, artillery houses, big one-ton guns. And and I was digging away in this friend of mine says, "Hey Hale," he said, "Look up on the mountain. There's some guys up there raising a flag. Oh. Looks like." And I said, "Oh, great! That sounds." I'm, I thought, "Dude, that's good because we won't have. We've taken it." And then I, I never looked up. I just kept digging, and so I missed the famous flag raising,
0: <laughs> which now, took place. Joe, <laughs> what, uh, what group were you? What division? Were you in uh, I was in the
1: fifth Marine Division.
0: You the fifth Marine Division of the Amphibious Corps. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And uh and so you were you were on Jima. you saw action there. Uh yeah. and then you got discharged in nineteen forty six?
3: Well I was
1: I uh no, it wasn't for, was it forty six? Yeah, I guess it was. Yeah, I guess it was. I was uh after Iwo... We lost so many men and we and so much equipment. We were supposed to go to Guam and and uh, train there, but we they sent us all the way back to the Big Island of Hawaii, and we uh, retrained and re-equipped, and we were already, we were down at Hilo, and we were loading our ships, and we were on our way to invade Japan, which would have been a, a real disaster. And they, uh, uh, Got, dropped the bombs atom bombs. So instead of going in as an invasion troops we went to uh, Japan and to uh, Nagasaki and I was in Nagasaki for I think uh, about four months. Wow, we went right where they, we saw where the uh, bomb had gone off and, and the whole city was just the city wow. was just flattened and there was a lot of Catholics, Japanese Catholics. And there was a huge Catholic church, beautiful, it had been a beautiful place, and it had just blown to pieces. You can still see that it, it was a church. Uh, but a few miles from that was uh, a district where, there were, where they had the geisha houses. And when the bomb went off and destroyed the church, but there was a little, some hills between the, the blast and the, and the, when the, or the bomb went off, so the the bomb went over and destroyed everything except the geisha houses. So all the prostitutes were Save. saved, and all the priests were destroyed. Wow! we're saying, you know, God does work in mysterious ways.
0: Yeah, wow. he certainly does. Holy mackerel! What? And and so after you get out of the Marines, you you got your high school diploma, uh, mm-hmm. from, from what I I understand. Yeah, I took it. Yeah,
1: Dan and Ken and I were all, and they had gotten out just a little before I got out. And there was a teacher, Mabel Fox, she was one of our teachers, and she said, uh, I saw her on the street after I'd been home a few weeks, and she said, Joe, next Tuesday I want you and Dan and Ken Slocum to be in my, meet me in my room at, in, in the high school building at five o'clock, I want you to make sure you're there. You're going to take your GED test. You got to have a high school diploma. So we went sat down and she passed out these tests. And uh, she said, "Now I got something to do for about an hour. So between the three of you guys, you ought to be able to figure this out. <laughs> <laughs> so we did. And we all passed with flying colors. <laughs> so that's how I got my diploma. And then you went on to art school in Michigan, right? Yes, and we went to uh, uh, Saginaw. Saginaw, Michigan, but the t- and for six months, for one semester, actually. But he was more of a landscape painter, and I wasn't really interested in that as much as uh, well. I I was just didn't really know what I was interested in, but I no, I didn't want to do that. And, uh, you know, I had spent three years in the Pacific in the, in the beautiful tropical weather. And that December, a uh, we had a big blizzard. It was, it was just before New Year's. It started the end of December and the first couple of days of January. Nothing moved in the, the town. And I thought, my God, I can't take this cold. So I packed up and got on the highway and I started hitchhiking towards Chicago and uh, a truck driver pulled over and he, those days you could hitchhike. It was safe. And uh, he said, where are you going, son? I said, I'm going to uh, California. I'm going to work for Disney. And I, where that came out, I, where it came from, I don't know. It just popped out of my mouth. <laughs> so I hitchhiked to California and I went to so I. I uh, I went to Chenard's and uh, Art Center, and they were both booked up. And uh, so I heard about Lucas Academy of Fine Arts. So I went there and uh, showed Theodore Lucas some of my stuff, uh, you know, things I had done. And he said, yeah, yeah, you, uh, you can, we'll take you. So I went there for two and a half years.
0: And and just for the audience, uh, Theodore, uh, now you, you you pronounce it Lucas or Lu- Lucas? Lucas. Lucas, yeah, Theodore Lucas uh, was a a very well established portrait painter and landscape artist out here in Los Angeles. He was a plein air painter, and yes. he started this uh, academy, which actually um, uh, didn't close until I think 1990. And how was yeah. it going? How was it going to school there?
1: It was very interesting because uh, a lot of the fellows that went there. Were, worked for Pacific Outdoor Advertising, which, then, in those days they had billboards all over town, all over, you know, all over the country really. And uh, he trained uh, uh, all the people for uh, uh, Pacific Outdoor Advertising, and then and he did all of the whenever a studio did a picture about you know Gogan or whoever some famous classic artist. And they needed a portrait of that this artist on s- s- screen did of like Olivia de Havilland or whoever. Uh, he, he could paint in any style. He was a f- fabulous, uh, fabulous artist. And,
0: and so he, he was able to uh, create paintings for the movies.
1: Yeah. And so I, uh, you start off with, Lucas, uh, you started off with drawing skeletons you you started from the very basic bones in the body, and you had to learn all the all the uh, muscles and the names of everything. And uh, it was quite a quite. A, and then you started working from nude models and went on from there. Were Were there any other Disney
0: artists that went through that academy? I think it uh, seemed like there was
1: one, or not, but I don't remember who it was now.
0: Yeah, because a lot. A lot that of... Went to chenard right? Yeah, most of them went to chenard Yeah. Which is now Cal Arts.
1: Yeah. So anyway, after I finished at Lucas, I uh, I, I was working. Uh, I, I uh, even though I lived in the valley, not too far from Disney Studios, I never. I just thought, well, uh, they'll never hire me there. So I got a job at a silk screen shop in Culver City, and we did posters and wallpaper and all the whole bunch of stuff, and I worked there for about a year, and then one day, my uh, car wouldn't, something was wrong with my car, it was an old used car, and I was, lived about five miles from Disney, so I thought, what the hell, I'm gonna go, I just grabbed my portfolio, and went over to Disney, and I walked into the office, and uh, the end of the guard shack out in front, and uh, talked to uh, a really nice guy, a great guy, he was kind of the head of the security there. His name is O'Reilly. And I said, who do I, uh, is there anyone I can talk to about getting a job here? And he said, well, uh, do you uh, do you belong to the Screen Actors, the Screen Cartoonists Guild? And I said, no. And he said, well, you got to belong to uh, the Screen Cartoonists Guild because uh, uh, this is a union shop. They won't hire you unless you belong to the Screen Cartoonists Guild. So I uh, said, well, I Kind of started to pack up and leave, and he and uh, I said, "Well, I'm, I'm going to go over. I'll get. I'll join the screen cartoonist guild." He said, "Well, no, you can't join the screen cartoonist guild if you don't have a job at the studio." That
0: that that's the famous catch twenty two about it, right? Yeah, it, 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 it's that's, like
1: a, that's true. It's very true. You could yeah. they wouldn't hire you. <laughs>
0: I, I was in the same boat many years later because you you couldn't get a job unless you were in the Screen Cartoonist Guild, but you couldn't get in the Screen Cartoonist Guild unless you had a job. So it was really <laughs> about having a studio say, we want to hire this guy. Then they put you into the Screen Cartoonist That's guilds. right. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> so anyway, uh, he said, well, here, let me make a phone call. He called Andy Ingman. Andy and he said, uh, "I heard him say on the phone." He said, "I got this young fellow out here is uh, is looking. He wants to show somebody his artwork." And uh, Andy was again, didn't have anything to do at that particular time, so he said, "Well, send him on in." So I thought, "Great! I'll get to get inside the studio and see what it's really like, and maybe see some real artists." So I went into Andy's office and uh, had my portfolio, which is right over there in the corner, and. Uh, <laughs> I never showed you that. I'll show you sometime. Anyway, uh, he looked through it, and uh, he said, yeah, we're starting Peter Pan, and uh, he, he saw the, I could do, you know, uh, human-type figures, which, you know, Peter Pan was a real boy, and uh, he said, yeah, I think we could use you, and I said, really? And he said, yeah. He says, oh, and he told me about Peter Pan. And so I thought, oh my God. And and they gave me a, sent me down at a desk and Johnny, I forget his name, came in and and showed me how to do in betweens, flipping the paper and drawing
0: the. Was it John Lounsbury or? No. uh, No.
3: Johnny Bond?
0: Johnny Bond. Johnny Bond. Johnny Bond. Johnny
1: Bond. So he gave me a drawing test and I passed that okay. So uh, (laughs) the rest is history.
0: And uh, and so your first picture was uh, Peter Pan?
1: First picture was, uh, well, we worked a little bit on uh, Alice in Wonderland. We oh, were just, just finishing, finishing that. Finishing
0: it off, yeah.
1: Yeah. And then we, you know, in those days you would do, uh, between features, they always had a, a bunch of uh, shorts, you know, Mickey cartoons and the six-minute short subjects with Donald sure. Trump. Goofy or those things. So you did. We did I I don't know ten or twelve of those between each feature at that time. Yeah. So that's how I you know. So I started off doing really doing uh, Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck and, and. And then you went into layout. Is that right? Uh, no, I, I stayed in uh, uh, animation, and I Kimball uh, Ward Kimball uh, was doing some of these. oh uh,
0: uh, Oh, uh, uh, the uh, it's tough to be a bird. and Yeah, those uh, things. Uh, whi- uh, toot, whistle, plunk, or uh, whistle, yeah. Toot, plunk. Yeah. And uh, so I worked for Ward, and he, I, he,
1: he liked the way I drew. So uh, I worked w- with Ward. We became good friends. And uh, then one day I thought I was working away, and I thought. This really isn't Disney, this Kimball-type stuff. I wanted to do the feature type. And uh, so I went to, uh, uh, I was talking to Don Griffith about it, and he said, well, listen, why don't you uh, go into layout? He said, you can, you know, he said, he can work with me. So I went and talked to Ken Peterson, and I said, you know, Ken, I've been working on the Kimball-type stuff, and that's not really... Disney feature, and that's not going to last forever. I think it's kind of a fad right now. And I said, you know, we've got the nine old men, and then we, that are great, great, great animators. And then we got another, next to the nine old men, we got about 12 or 15, what they call shorts animators, which were as good as a really damn near as good as the nine old men. And then we had the uh, top. Really professional uh, assistant animators that worked for the nine, the nine old men and the other nine old men. So it looked. I thought, geez, I'll be uh, uh, doing cleanup here for the rest of my life. <laughs> so I said, I'd like to try layout, and I talked, told him about talking to Don, and so they said, yeah. So then that's how I got. I went into layout on. Uh, I think it was Sleeping Beauty. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was Sleeping Beauty. So that was my first layout
0: and uh and, and that was a very stylized picture too, because yes. you you were mentioning with Ward Kimball during that time period in the fifties, you had the uh, UPA style cartoons, which were very yeah. gra- very 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 graphic cartoons like Mister Magoo and things like that, and it was uh, uh, Ward gravitated to those new styles, yeah. Uh, yeah. but but it was it was a departure from uh, the sort of classic Disney animation. Yes.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: And uh, so you, you did lay out on Sleeping Beauty.
1: Yeah, I uh, used to you, used to that. walk around a lot and always wanted to see what was going on in different departments. So I was walking on the third floor one day on my lunch hour and I uh, looked in the room and there's a fellow in there that was doing these really interesting paintings on, I think, Lady and the Tramp, some backgrounds. And uh, I walked in, we got talking and it turned out it was, it was new this Ivan Earl, and I was looking at some of the things he was doing, and I said, you know, you're going to make a lot of people envious when they see your work. And uh, anyway, we became real good friends. And uh, so uh, when he was doing, let uh, me put him on, on Sleeping Beauty, he was doing the uh, forest where the, uh, the prince, princess meets the prince, for the first time where she's dancing with the little animals and singing and all that. Uh And it was being laid out by uh, Colin Campbell. And, uh, but it wasn't in the Ivan Earl style. Well, Ivan's style was easy to me. It was easy to do. And so I was doing some also. And he, so he said, I want, he went to whoever and said, I want Hale to do sequence eight for me. I want him to do everything. And so he, called me in and told me what he wanted me to do. And I said, great. And uh, so I took all of uh, Colin Campbell, which were beautiful layouts. And I didn't even think about keeping them, I threw them all in the trash. (laughs) And uh, so I, anyway, that was my first uh, picture was uh, Sleeping Beauty was the, the-
0: The first one that you were fully in layout.
1: Yeah, well I did all the layouts in that particular sequence and yeah, then I worked yeah. with Don.
0: I worked in a room with Don Griffin
1: uh-huh. and uh, we became a real good friends.
0: And, and you and did you go right on to 101 Dalmatians from there? Yeah yeah and uh, uh, when did you start working on the wonderful world of Disney material or was that sort of happening in between while you guys were working on the features?
1: Well, I was working with after Sleeping Beauty. I went to work with uh, Wilford Jackson Mm -hmm. and Dick Humor. and we were doing a TV show. We did a couple of TV shows, and then Wilford Jackson had a heart attack, and he retired. And so they uh, I started working for Ham Lusk. I worked for Ham on uh, a lot of uh,
3: Wonderful World.
1: Yeah, Wonderful World of Color. For about ten years I worked on TV show.
3: Ranger so. and
0: Yeah. Little Ranger guy nature. Joe, did you have much in the way of interaction at all with Walt Disney? Did you meet him, uh talk with him? Well, I was I was in a lot of story meetings. <laughs> well, it was a story meeting with with Wilfred Jackson
1: and uh and uh, Dick Humor, uh putting together some Shorts and making a, t- a wonderful world of color TV show out of it, and uh, they got to a point where uh, uh, they, Walt didn't like what he saw, and so w- without really thinking, I said, so "Why don't we do so and so?" And so I gave him, the, came up with my idea, and Walt says, "Yeah, I think that'll work." And he <laughs> got up and left. <laughs> And uh, the next day, Les Clark came down, and I was working away. And Les says, "Hey, listen, Joe, I want to tell you something. And I don't take it the wrong way because I'm—I'm. I'm, this is for your best interest. When you're in a meeting with Walt, and you have an idea, save it till the, after he's gone, and then tell the director about it. Because if you—if you had come up with a really dumb idea, Walt would have just ripped you to pieces." And he said, <laughs> "So." And he said, I'm telling you this for your own good. And I knew he was. Yeah, so yeah. I was in a lot of meetings with Walt. and uh, But I always said at one side, and I'd take notes or whatever. And uh, I think once he said, uh, hey you're uh, being awful quiet. And I said, well, I would be better.
2: That's awesome. I love those teachable moments that, that you uh, that you had there, because you know that's a great lesson in life. Actually, It's a great life lesson.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's always nice to have somebody give you a heads up on things like that too. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, and I knew that I I knew that Les Clark was telling me this for my own good. It wasn't there was nothing devious about it. He was just saying, hey, Hale. That's if you awesome. want to stay here you better learn to keep your mouth shut.
0: <laughs> so Joe, uh um, I think uh you know you you spent a lot of time in the animation department. Did you ever get involved with any of the Disneyland projects in the 60s? Did you ever I know some of the artists would get pulled on to things yes. for a few weeks. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you know the reason Sleeping Beauty <clears throat> it took so long to make. <clears throat> was it Walt was really getting in and into Disneyland the design it was getting ready to open and so people were doing all sorts of odd jobs uh, we had to design trash cans and shoulder patches and all that and uh, Ken Anderson was in the right across the hall from me at that time and uh, there was a I don't know if you remember there was a uh, like a little uh, not much bigger than a big swimming pool. It was a circle, and there was a pirate ship, five eight scale pirate ship, floating in the middle of a beautiful.
0: Yeah, down at at Disneyland, uh, it was yes. off, it was off to the side of the castle uh, where Fantasyland is. Yeah, and 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 that pirate ship was a little restaurant. Originally, it was called Chicken of the Sea.
1: Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was sponsored by Chicken of the Sea Tuna. Yeah. And Ken Anderson had a, was doing a lot of design for the park, and he was, they needed it in a hurry. So he came over and he said, Hey, Joe, I got a uh, project for you. And he said, I, I, you need, to, I need to have a, a, a benches and a feeding area and you know, a little uh, area for, the, for people to sit and rest and eat, because and, you know, we need something around the pirate ship. So I did some benches kind of based on coral reefs. And uh, there was a uh, uh, skull. I, I, I put the skull rock in there. And uh, then later that was all taken out. I think the skull rock is still there, but it was there for a number of years. But
0: Yeah, they ripped all that out during the big Fantasyland uh, yes. uh, makeover.
1: Yeah, actually the pirate ship was getting... Uh, starting to rot away, and I guess they had to, it's too bad it was a beautiful ship.
0: Yeah, a, a portion of that ship is actually in the Peter Pan flight's ride now. Oh, uh, really? When, when, they, when they did a uh, refresh of the Peter Pan's flight, they actually, re- during that whole uh, uh, refurbishing of, of Fantasyland that they did, uh, oh, yeah. they took part of that pirate ship and, and used it in Peter Pan's flight. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> So uh, that, that that brings us along, and I think I, I, Al John, I, I I'm so anxious to talk about the Black Cauldron because this year is the 35th anniversary. Joe Hale was the producer of that movie. He was at the top of the top of the hill on that uh, on that movie, and uh, and Joe, I know you've been talking a lot about it in, in recent months with interviews and stuff like that. But but can you tell tell our audience? when you first got involved with it? Because it was quite a bit before the movie actually ever materialized. Uh,
1: yeah, I was working on, uh, I had been working in on live action films, like uh, Peach Dragon, and
3: uh, Bedknobs and
1: Broomsticks, and uh, uh, The Black Hole. The Black Hole, yeah. yeah. I'd been, I had been working on live action for about 10 years. and. Uh, we had the last one I worked on was uh Watch. Watcher in the Woods, and we finished that. And so, they I needed a new assignment, so they put me uh, <clears throat> on the uh uh story, story. Yeah. Uh, development, uh,
3: the black hole, the cauldron.
1: Yeah, oh, <clears throat> I had a room uh, <clears throat> room by myself, and I like and I really enjoyed it because I'd been to. Uh, 10 years with live action, which is really a lot of fun, but it's a lot of hassle too. So anyway, uh, I would sit in there and kind of imagine the boy climbing into the castle. And so I was working on that sequence and really enjoying it. And, uh, there was, I know there had been a lot of problems between the new animators and the old animators. And, uh, I didn't want to get involved in that at all. And, uh, so I w- was working by myself, really.
0: Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Can you talk yeah. about It's sort of that new wave of animators that were coming in from Cal Arts, and the yeah. nine old men and some of the people that had been there for decades were starting to get towards retirement, right? Yeah.
1: And I think... Uh, uh,
0: was there friction between the two groups or did they well, just... Don,
1: I think Don, Don Bluth and his group left. Had, had left by that time.
0: Yeah. So there was a lot of just
1: problems.
0: A lot of chaos, I think, right? Yeah, because lot, people yeah. didn't know what to do and there were some some experienced people had left uh, that were trying to bring those new guys in and uh, get them up to speed. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So anyway, uh, one of the animators came up and, he's, and he said, uh a lot of the animators they know about your work, and they we would like you, you to. We want to go to Ron and have you take over the picture from Art Stevens. And I said, "Oh, whoa, whoa, wait a minute!" And I said, "Art, I, I said I spent several years working with Art in the same room with that. We're good friends." And I said, "There's no way I'm going to take over his job."
0: Was Art actually producing the show, or...? Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, so
0: he was, he was the producer initially. He
1: was in charge, and Art and I were very close friends. Mm-hmm. So anyway, finally, uh, Ed Hansen had heard from Ron Miller that they wanted me to... I don't know if some animators had gone to Ron or what. Anyway, they, uh, Ron called me up to his office with Ed Hanson, and uh, asked me if I would like to take over as producer on The Black Cauldron. And I said, well, no, not really. I said, I, I, I'm happy in story. And I said, I, I, I don't want to get involved in all the hassle that's going politics. on. The, yeah, the politics. Yeah,
0: yeah. I don't blame you.
1: I said, uh, uh, you know, I really don't want to do it. And so then a week or so went by, and then I got called up again and given the same pitch. And finally, he said, look, you got to – he said, I'm not – somebody's going to take over the picture. You're not replacing – Art Stevens is going to be replaced. So either, you know, you take it or somebody else is going to take it. So I thought, well, Jesus, if they want me – I didn't have much choice. I just fell. Yeah. So
0: that's yeah. how I got involved with it. And, and did Art Stevens retire at that point?
3: Yeah,
1: like he did
0: right yeah. after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and so now, as a producer, were you still doing uh, story development? And uh, were you doing any artwork early on uh, during the development phase? Uh,
1: no, I was just I was just doing story.
0: Okay. Yeah. And, I was writing it down. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't storyboards at that point. No,
1: I wasn't coming, boarding. You know.
0: Yeah, you were. You were coming up with the script, so
1: to speak. I did the uh, I, the first one I did was the uh, Taron uh, going into the climbing up and going into the castle where he's captured. You wrote that sequence. Or yeah. You worked on that. Yeah, I worked. I wrote that
0: sequence. That's fantastic. And and, and then it started to pick up steam. Uh, at, at that point do you know what yeah. year that, do you know what year it was when they made you the producer it was not
3: 1980
0: I think 1980 yeah. so it's mm-hmm. still a couple more years of development uh, before uh, things really got they were st- the most of the the department was still finishing off Fox and the Hound is that right yeah yeah and uh, so uh, talk a little bit about uh, once the uh, production team started coming on to the project, because you, you were instrumental in bringing Andreas Deja in.
1: Yes. Uh, yeah, uh, we were, I had, uh, we did not really settle on any of the characters yet. Design. Design. And so uh, Ed Hanson came up with a portfolio and showed me, uh, he said, this is a, Andreas Deja, a young German boy, and I, and I looked at his work, and it was like he had that Disney DNA. He, his style was the Disney style. It was really weird, so I said, gee, hire this kid, you know, and he said, well, he's in Germany, and I said, well, you know, bring him over, so anyway, that's how uh, Andreas Got
0: involved. With. And, and, and Phil Nibblink was already there because he came in yes. uh, from, from CalArts. Yeah, uh, so yeah. And and Glenn Keane didn't really work on the picture much, did he? I don't know. Uh, I, did, I think Glenn may have skipped over the Black Cauldron. Yeah, I'm um, not sure. Yeah, yeah. Because he was instrumental yeah. certainly in Fox and the Hound. Yes. Yeah. But Phil Nibblink and Andreas were, were the two supervising animators yeah yeah and um uh so you know talk- talk some more about uh what it was like uh uh getting that picture together because there was a lot of uh issues
1: well yeah it was a kind of the whole thing was just kind of a a mess there was uh, one group wanted to go one way and another group wanted to go another way and and we didn't we had bits and pieces, and, uh, and I, my job was, I can remember as, uh, the frustration of it, is just trying to get some sort of, We I knew we had to get the picture out that it was costing a lot of money. And uh, if I didn't, you know, I had to get it going because we were, the animators were coming off Fox and Han, and, and I didn't want to see anybody laid off. So it was Trying to get this kind of thing organized, and I, well, that part of it is kind of a nightmare to me. Yeah, and,
0: uh, and and the story, too, was difficult because you're dealing with this series of uh, fantasy books. There was like five, five books in the series. Yeah, that's
1: the first thing I did was read the books. Yeah. And then trying to... But actually, being the producer of that picture was not a very pleasant experience.
0: (laughs) 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 Well, and I think it's important for the audience to realize that in the middle of production on the Black Cauldron, the studio itself, the whole Walt Disney company, was in the process of a potential takeover. Yeah. Uh, and, and there was a financier from Wall Street who thought the company was worth more in pieces sold off. Uh, yeah. and, and so that, that caused chaos in the board. Uh, Roy Disney had resigned from the board. Um, uh, and then engineered uh, the White Knights, the Hunt brothers from Texas to come in to take a stake in the company, to help save the company. And all this is swirling around while uh, this group of artists is trying to to make a movie.
1: Yeah, and we had lost a lot of our top animators, you know, and... uh,
0: It really was. I mean, it was a studio in transition at that point. Yeah, you know? yeah. And, and then partway into the production, you had all these new executives coming in that most of them had worked over at Paramount. You had Michael Eisner yeah. and Jeffrey Katzenberg. Frank yeah. Wells had been an executive at Warner Brothers. And yeah. all these people come in and they didn't know uh, their animation from their elbow. That's right. Yeah, so the
1: whole thing was just uh, I don't know <laughs> I don't know how I survived it, but I managed to
0: somehow. <laughs> well, you know, it was trial by fire because it was my first picture. I came in uh, in 1984 at the very bottom of the black cauldron. I was an in-betweener in the effects department. Mm-hmm. So I, I remember what was going on at the studio at that time. And what were your thoughts when you were hearing some of this stuff?
1: Well, I was busy. I was trying to concentrate on picking up the pieces of the story and and making a picture. You know, and getting. I, I just wanted to get a picture made, and uh, so it was. Uh, I don't remember. I I know there was all every day was a hassle. Seems like yeah. I couldn't.
2: I couldn't but imagine. I, I couldn't imagine being around during that time with all that stuff going on. And uh, and you, Mr. Hale, dealing with the politics uh, involved with you know the new management coming in, one direction going one way, you going the other way, and you being producer having to reel in all of these these cats in order to get this film made. I, yeah. I couldn't imagine the, I mean, just the amount of work you had to, to to pour into it just to get through the finish line.
1: And then also see after uh, Don had left with the. Uh, the bunch of animators uh they were they didn't want to make that get, get any more frustration going with the animators so they sort of said that you guys are this is your studio you're going to be in charge uh so you know do whatever you Feel good doing, and they wanted to do. I'd go down in the A Wing and to see one of the animators, and they'd be seeing you see somebody standing on his head, and somebody seeing how long he could stand on his head. <laughs> and I, so they were just the, the production was <laughs> going nowhere. Uh, I kept getting the uh, budget uh, slipper uh, every week and be a hundred thousand, another hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars and nothing was being done. And I was trying to, what do they say? Pay, gather wet cats, or herd, herding, cats. Herding,
0: herding cats. Herding cats. Herding yes, cats. Yes, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and so the production yeah. obviously did get going, and it did get done. Yeah. Uh, but but then you had Jeffrey Katzenberg come in on top of the studio side of yeah. the business, and uh, and he uh, he had his own viewpoint on the story. And he can you talk a little bit about that and some of the funny things that happened along the way because he didn't understand <laughs> animation at that point.
1: Yeah, well. Yeah, he came in and and Katzenberg was uh, he was there was a book. I don't know if you ever heard of it, it was called What's, What Makes Sammy Run. It was like uh, yeah, Bud, yeah. Bud Schulberg.
0: Okay. Uh, it's
1: about a young man in Hollywood and how he <laughs> maneuvered around and and managed to take credit for things he didn't do and and didn't take blame for anything that went wrong. And that was kind of Katzenberg. In fact, a funny story is going back to Iwo Jima, I had that book, uh, that's where I read it It was. It was on that ship going to Iwo and I read uh, What Makes Sammy Run and then I gave the book to somebody else. And uh, he loaned it to a guy named Sam Baranja from Vermont. And we were on the beach and the bullets are flying all over the place and zipping by. And and uh, Sam crawls up to the guy that loaned him the book and says, hey, here, I want to return your book. And everybody thought that was a hilarious in the middle of this.
0: <laughs> he wanted to return funniest it. battle of this of world. Yeah. War. He wanted to and, return it just in case,
1: huh? <laughs> he says, yeah. No, no time like the present. <laughs> I want to give you your book back interesting. Like, you know that's interesting. Yeah. Um, so anyway, Katzenberg, yeah, he didn't really understand animation and but he wanted Roy came back at the same time and Roy wanted a job there. He wanted he, See he, he sort of engineered getting Katzenberg and Eisner back and he wanted a job there and he talked to me about it and he said, you know, Joe he said I, I I want to get involved in this the studio again and he said I'd like to Get a job here he says, you know i've been uh, I come in every day, but i don't uh, I don't get a paycheck and I don't have a job and says, assignment and he said, you know Katzenberg gets, doesn't want competition or something anyway he they didn't care much for each other, I don't think so uh he said, uh you know uh, I'd like to work with you and uh, help me get you know back in in the studio so that was, I thought I was great.
0: Yeah, so I, I, I was going to say, he, be, he eventually became, he was vice chairman of the company, but he was chairman of the animation department. He really yeah. saved, saved the animation department. Exactly.
1: Anyway, uh, so we, we set up a screening for uh, Eisner and Katzenberg, and uh, what's the guy that was killed? Uh,
0: uh, Frank Wells. Frank, Frank Wells, Frank yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: So uh, we ran the picture we the got work, it. work reels, right? The work, yeah. And uh it was at night. It was at seven o'clock, I think. We started running, and then about a third of the way through, Frank Wells wasn't there. So anyway, they started it anyway. So he comes in with a big, huge bag of popcorn, and they're talking. The movie's going. And they're talking and. Eating popcorn, and I thought, oh, God, uh, I want to stop and start over. And then, no, 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 I'll just keep it running. And uh, anyway, uh, Katzenberg said uh, uh, the next day, he said, cut 10 minutes out of the picture. And I said, Well, what 10 minutes? You know, you want to look at it again and show me what, the, what don't you like about it? He said, Just cut 10 minutes out of it. So I got with Roy, and Roy would. We tried to figure out where we could cut, so we we'd meet every morning and run it on a movieola, and we'd and Roy liked to have a few drinks at night <laughs> <laughs> and being with our heads together on the movieola, uh, and after he would had, had a night of drinking, <clears throat> that was a <laughs> job in itself. but anyway,. Uh, So we cut, I think it was two two and a half minutes. And we thought, well, that's not not hurting it too much. So we called, set up a meeting with Jeff. And he comes into the sweat box and he said, uh, we're getting ready to run it. And he said, uh, now, did you cut 10 minutes out of it? And I said, uh, Roy, I think, said, no, we just cut two and a half, about two and a half. He said, I said 10. And he left. And here's what he was doing, according to Roy. He said, he's wants to let me know he's my boss and I said well yeah and he said well you know he has a contract and I don't even have a paycheck so he got our heads together and we cut a few more minutes out of it and then Jeff Kastenberg brought in a bunch of young guys I don't know where they came from and he cut 12 and a half minutes I believe And it was never the same picture again. It was was
0: too bad. But you know what? It's still, still, uh, I think, uh, held up very well. Uh, uh, Roger Ebert gave it a good review when it first... Oh,
1: yeah. I got some... Actually, I got some... Yeah.
0: Yeah, and uh, uh, and I I rewatched it last week uh, uh, because I hadn't seen it in a while, and uh, I thought it played very well. You know, uh, all yeah, things yeah. considered, with, with everything that went on to get that movie made, I thought it played very well.
1: Yeah, and there was a you know, it cost. I think it was uh, well. They said twenty five million.
0: Yeah, that's what that's what they told everybody, but it was probably a lot more than that.
1: Well wait, yeah. then I heard later they said it cost 70 million. Yeah. But then I had a good friend in uh, Keith Cheney in the project he ran the projection department. He told me later, he said we were told to unload all of our charges onto the black cauldron because they're going to write it off as a loss. So all the departments, and
3: studio overhead. all
1: the studio overhead that had budgets that they were trying to make look better, charged it all to the Black Cauldron because they were going to write it off anyway. So yeah, I mean, people I mean, would say it cost $70 million. Well, that was... You know, creative yeah. bookkeeping, really.
0: Yes, yeah, that wasn't that wasn't the real cost of the movie. No. and 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 certainly uh, with the new management that came in, Jeffrey and uh, and Michael and those guys, uh, they they I think they looked at the Black Cauldron as this isn't our movie, our movie. We don't care about it, uh, and they didn't want to put any more into it than than was already spent.
1: Yeah, I remember talking to Card Walker about that. And uh, I said, you know, I, it, it was a better movie before they got their hands on it. And he said, I, 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 and he said, well, you know, do you ever think about the fact that they might not have wanted it to be successful in the first place? Because
3: of Ron, they didn't want Ron Miller to have, after they had booted him out, they didn't want him to have a successful last release.
0: Yeah. Absolutely, and I and I think that the the real victim during that period was this movie because yeah. it got no marketing support or anything when it was released, and I, I think the funny story too was that Jeffrey asked you for the outtakes uh, on yeah. the movie, right?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Can you yeah. talk about that a
1: little bit? Well, that's it. You want to
0: look at We don't have outtakes. Well, yeah, I mean, for the audience, uh, um, uh, when you have a live action movie, you're usually shooting with multiple cameras. You have different different angles on a scene. So you have a lot of footage to pull from to do editing work. With animation, you don't have that. You're you're animating scenes that have been laid out uh, in a sequence. And and there's no extra, so to speak. There's yeah. no, there's That's, not another angle or whatnot. And Jeffrey was asking for the outtakes yes. uh, uh, <laughs> so that he could go into editing and see if he could recut the picture. Yeah.
2: That is amazing to me. That is absolutely an amazing comment. To me. But yeah. here's here's one thing I I I want to know, sir. And maybe Dave, you can chime in. But I've always wanted to find out that you talked Joe about the editing the taking out of the 10 minutes. Do you know where that footage is? I think there's tons of Disney fans that are like myself, who watch the Black Cauldron, love the movie. As Dave says, it still holds up. Where is the footage? And do you think if they find it, would we ever be able to see the footage and that was... It wasn't was?
3: totally animated, was it? Well, uh,
1: uh, yeah, some of that footage were real. Well, I think was uh, still in... Uh, Yeah, some were, it was in story sketch, some was rough animation, some was cleaned up animation, some was dailies, color dailies. Yeah, some
0: was already in color, yeah.
1: Gosh, I would love to uh, see that. I I mean, I... Well, you know, the funny thing is... Somewhere in the box there, all that footage is laying somewhere, but...
0: But you know the the funny thing is is that over the years I've had people reach out to me and say, you know, where's the missing 12 and a half minutes? Well, and I don't think people realize it wasn't just a 12 and a half minute chunk. Uh, it was bits and pieces mm-hmm. from throughout the whole film to kind yeah. of tighten it up and get it down to a certain running time. <coughs> well, that, right?
2: well that's a, that's another yeah. question that I that for you that's for you guys because was Katzenberg just really just hell-bent on keeping the runtime super short? Because the movie, uh, uh, it runs 120, I'm sorry, like uh, 80 minutes, something like that? 80 uh, minutes. So was he just really uh, hell-bent on keeping it tight like that? Or was there absolutely no wiggle room whatsoever? He, he said in his mind, animation needs to be this this amount
1: i i think partly they they wanted to make it less scary for little kids because when we had we had uh audience reaction screenings uh in different points of the picture and uh, there would always you know they would invite people from all around burbank to come in and bring their kids to see a disney movie on the lot and uh, I was always there, and uh, there was always (laughs) several (laughs) mothers taking their screaming kids up the aisle and out of the theater.
2: (laughs) Well, you talk about yeah.
1: They wanted to make it less scary. They wanted to make it for, uh, you know, more of a, a kid's picture.
0: Right. And 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 the, and the original intent was to actually age up the animation a little bit and scare the teenagers, right?
1: Yeah. Well, that was the whole idea behind the uh, when we made the film uh, that I had heard was that they wanted to make a film that would appeal to teenagers because uh, uh, teenagers wouldn't be caught dead in a Disney picture at that time. We were making these silly, you know.
0: Yeah. And and the G rating was also the kiss of death for the movie exhibitors, for oh, the yeah. theaters, right? Because yeah, they, they, had, yeah. if they had a G rated movie, they they'd fill a couple of matinees, but they wouldn't bring people in into That's the right. evening. Because, yeah. So yeah,
1: that, and and, movies were Hollywood was going through a changed taste and had changed.
0: And Black Cauldron was the first PG animated Disney film to be released, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah, that's amazing.
2: That's amazing. Well, speaking of a little bit scary, you know, the Horn King is a is a great is a great villainous figure. And he's super dark, and I personally enjoy him. But um, what was it like? Maybe if you could remember, talk uh, doing that type of uh, character design with a with a. I guess at that point, relatively young, uh, Tim Burton. You guys remember working with Tim Burton at all in that in that film? What your thoughts were? Yeah, well,
1: yeah, Tim. Uh, I didn't know. Someone said we. Tim Burton is uh, really got a unique uh, design
3: ability. Style. Yeah.
1: Style. yeah. He said you should look at this stuff so i said well okay bring him up and i put him in a room with somebody else i don't remember who it was and uh he started designing pictures characters for the cauldron but they were so they were great pictures but they were so different from disney that uh like i said to him i said well you know i, I love your work but uh it, it, you should have been here around day one and I'd give you a hand to do the picture if you could have done it whatever way you wanted. But uh, you know, this is not the Disney Disney style and it won't those characters won't work in the story we've that we're working on. So, yeah.
0: you know, oh, yeah. appreciate his work. He did have influence on the Horn King design though, yes? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, he had a yeah, he had
0: influence, yes. He yeah. did. That's very good. And uh, Joe, I'm just curious, uh, what what do you uh, remember? I mean, do you have a fond memory from the the Black Cauldron production at all? a particular no. incident you don't have any fond memories son. no <laughs> well,
3: no he, did, he he enjoyed his work he enjoyed his work in story and he was great at, he was a great story person very 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 creative and he really wanted to stay in story and contribute to the story and i think maybe uh the storyline would have been better if he had remained in story instead of having to go in management, which he yeah. did not want to do at all. And then when Cassenberg came in, then it was like two heads yeah. <laughs> bashing against yeah. each other, and Joe would not sit back and take any crap off Jeffrey. Sure. <laughs> Therefore, Jeffrey hated Joe, and the feeling was probably mutual. But You know, Jeffrey right. wanted everybody to recognize him as the head, and uh, he knew everything and do it my way or get out of the way. And Joe Joe, Joe and he just locked horns and that was it. <laughs>
1: well, we were in a meeting one day and he was talking about how he cut three and a half minutes out of uh, uh, what are the uh, Spielberg's first the space movies. Uh,
0: a close Encounters?
1: Yeah. And uh, uh, what was the one with... Uh,
3: Oh, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. It? I can't
1: think. I don't think of it. Anyway, yeah. it sort of indicated that uh,
3: where's the one where Steven Spielberg? Was it?
1: Yeah,
2: was it ET? First... Wait, Give me a... Al John. Was it was that ET before he before he left uh, Paramount? ET?
1: No, it was after
3: uh not Schindler's List.
2: No, no, no. no,
1: no. Well, anyway, yeah anyway and i sort of called him on it said you mean you think those pictures these were real successful you know i yeah with star wars and uh
3: no that that was lucas lucas yeah Yeah. that's the one i meant lucas you meant lucas yeah anyway and go ahead and finish this you called katzenberg on this three and a half minute cut what happened yeah
1: well he got
2: upset because
0: uh you challenged
1: him. I challenged him. Yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think he. It sounded sounds to me like he just wanted to let everyone know that he was the boss.
0: Yeah. No, and well, I, and yeah. That was. Always, and that was always the case throughout Jeffrey's career, is that he was always constantly uh, in search of the accolades. Yeah, that's
1: right.
2: Yeah, that goes yeah. back to your story, Joe, about the uh, you know what makes um, oh that, that book you were talking about.
3: What makes? Yeah,
2: what makes Sammy run? run. That's right. It Goes back to that book once again. You know, I get it. Uh, I don't know if you. I don't know, Dave. We're at that point where we have some questions from our audience.
0: You... I was going before we do that, okay. we, we do have a couple questions uh, from our listeners that they've sent in, but Joe, I did want to touch on the music uh, oh, yes. because Al, the great Alma Bernstein did the score for the black cauldron. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and where it was recorded and what it was like working with Alma Bernstein?
1: Oh yeah. He was, a, you know, very professional. He came in and we, we had uh the assistant directors had taken bits and pieces of different scores from different movies, different, uh, and we had a score behind it when you know as we were making it. Sure, he didn't want to see it with that score. And I said, Well, just you know, it'll kind of give you a feeling because some of the music you'll find is music you've written for other pictures. And he said, Oh, okay, go ahead, and he, he ran it. And uh, but anyway. Yeah, he uh, liked it very much, and he brought this girl over from uh, England. If you remember in the score, there's a strange sound. Ooh,
0: yeah, yeah. That, for that, for the bobble, right? Yeah, Steph, yeah.
1: And she had uh, some kind of a
0: oh, the the theremin. Yes, yeah. a theremin. Yes, yes, yes. She she did the theremin sounds. I love yes. that. Yeah. I love that.
1: Yeah, he was uh, he. he he did a, a really good job. And the, and one of the things that bothered me when Katzenberg was cutting the damn thing was he was cutting uh, uh, some of his music that I liked out of it also. And
2: which didn't help. Was it decided early on Joe, that this film wasn't going to be a musical, you know, the musical ad- adaptation because. Oh yeah. 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 I just always assumed that, you know, we'd have a, how about the uh, how about the 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 special effects? You know, I I understand, Dave, because you were you were so involved in the effects, just like uh, you know Joe was for for many years over there at Disney. The visual effects was it the first time Disney utilized that uh, electronic um, animation, computerized animation, and and was it decided early on to use that experimental type of animation in this film?
1: Uh, no, that in fact the uh, computer animation kind of came along after the picture was started. And the only uh, computer animation we really used was uh, for the boat when they were escaping the, the, from it.
0: The, the boat and also uh, and the, pr- the, the, prince- the princess's bobble that followed yeah. her around. Right. Uh, I remember we did that on a, it was done on an HP desktop. And, uh, and then in the effects department, we had to tape the printouts onto animation paper. It's amazing. Yeah. It was yeah. It was rather yeah. antiquated, but it worked. Yeah. It worked.
2: I have, have to say, yeah. Go ahead, Joe.
0: Speaking of Elmer, let
1: me show you something real quick here. Okay.
0: Joe, Joe is now picking From. up his iPad and he's moving <laughs> it he's to giving show us, a tour. us something on his wall, and we're getting over to it. Up and here we are. It is.
3: Can you see it?
0: No, you gotta lower it, I think. Uh, we're seeing only part of a photograph. Uh, nope, but now I'm seeing two frames. <laughs> uh, the edges of two frames. Right. I think you gotta raise it up. Oh there. Joe with his bolo on, his Mickey mouse bolo. And Elmer. And, and oh. move it over just a little bit further to the... Yep, there you go. Now we see it. Yep. Nice. It's Joe and Alma Bernstein. What a wonderful thing. I Believe love that. Joe, Joe's got the baton in his hand. elmer has got a big smile. Uh, what well, That must have... Where was the recording done, Joe? Was that done in Los Angeles or London?
1: No, it was done at... Uh,
0: uh, I think the, it was Universal. At, at uh, one of the Universal stages? <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, I, I think at this point, uh, why don't we go to a couple listener questions, Al, John? All right. You've let's, got them. Let's do it. Skull Rock Podcast. Answers your email.
2: All right, Joe. So we've got this uh, question from... Just telling, guess I think that's how I pronounce it. I'm sorry if I butcher your name, but he goes. Who brought the um, Pride in Chronicles onto the radar at Disney Animation, and what aspect of the final film in the Black Cauldron are you most proud of?
0: Mm-hmm. So, so when when were the uh, when were the books acquired at the studio? Do you know? Uh,
1: from what I understand, is Don Duckwall's wife worked in the volunteer work in the library. And she discovered the books and brought them home. And Don uh, Duckwall, who was, uh, was manager. Man pro-
0: yeah, well, he was a production manager, wasn't he? Yeah, and uh,
1: yeah, and uh, he brought them in and showed them to a Wooly. And Wooly called Frank and Nolly up in the and Milton, and they that's how it they got started at the studio. And they bought the rights, they the bought studio. the rights,
0: yeah, uh-huh. okay. And uh, uh, the second part of that question, Al
2: John, was uh, what part, Joe, are you most proud of from before oh, the Black Cauldron? Well,
0: I, I don't know. I, I liked it all actually. Uh, I think oh, you're oh, proud. You're, you're proud of getting the movie done, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. That's an accomplishment. Yes. Yes. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, honestly, it took a Marine, I, I, a right. combat hardened Marine, to get this movie done because of all of the stuff swirling around that had nothing to do with the movie right. uh, yeah. that was going on at the time
2: yeah I mean believe, you have no idea <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that's real pro- project I only management have a little
0: bit of an idea I was I was uh, so low on the totem pole at that time but I could see it going on <laughs> mm,
2: bubbling the bubble the bubbling uh, cauldron yes.
0: Well, Joe, um, I want to thank you so much for being part of the show uh, and coming on as our guest and having your lovely wife, Beverly, there. You guys have been married for now, uh, I want to say, almost 70 years. No. No? <laughs> <I'm not> 60? <laughs> 60 years? How, how we, long
3: got, long? we got married in 1965.
0: 50. Oh, in 65. Okay. So I thought, I thought you guys were married uh, in in the early 50s. No
3: How old do I look? No
0: I was no oh. <laughs> yeah, You look fantastic. <laughs> but but the lovely Beverly you you raised two sons. you had a 40 you had a more than 40 year career. At
3: Disney, oh, his
0: forty-year career, yeah. Yeah, and, and and you've been married over fifty years. Wow, yeah. I mean, holy mackerel! Yeah,
2: you know, Joe. Before I let you go, and Dave, I'm I'm sorry, I've got to ask yeah. this one more question because Spencer sure, is like sure. pinging me on Facebook. Uh, Spencer Wright would like to know, Joe, regarding an animated Disney film. Can you please explain what the role of layout artist is and what your role was in the Black Cauldron, or, or how your role as a layout artist uh, was different than uh, Evan Earle's uh, role in in animation. Evan
3: Earle, that was Sleeping Beauty. Yes, yeah, I mean, yeah,
2: sleep, that's he lay right.
3: Out on Sleeping
1: well, Beauty. That's or? right.
2: Sleeping, yeah, Sleeping Beauty. That he was referencing Sleeping Beauty. There.
1: Oh well, anyway, one a layout artist says is you work. That's a, one of the reasons I really enjoyed layout was you work with the director and you have a lot to do with staging and you have a lot to do with the story. And you take the, uh, you work with a director and you draw the background and you draw the characters in the background. And for instance, if you're doing a a long uh, room, And a character comes through a door and walks across the stage and picks something up and goes out another door. You draw the layout. It's all done in pencil. You have the uh, drawing of the door open and closed and open and the character walking through and picking up something and you design whatever the character picks up. And in other words, you draw the picture And the animator takes your that layout and your drawings of the characters, and they animate the characters, and then it's shot as a screen test in uh, test camera in black and white, and you have the whole picture, the whole scene animated in pencil with the. And then you
0: draw the background. yeah, and, and in some sense you're you're a cinematographer when you're in the yes, layout that's department. It, that's you're, it. it. Really equates. Yeah, you're our director,
1: cinematographer, cinematographer,
0: tell me. Yeah, and, and you're you're helping with the staging by placing poses of the character along on the that's layout. That's right. You know? Yeah. It's yes.
2: Like lighting director and, and uh, blocking.
1: And the thing the thing that's interesting is that when the picture is done and they show the uh, scenes from the picture. Nobody really knows what a layout man does. The, all the credit goes to the background artist.
3: The layout man draws we the, backgrounds the backgrounds, and then the, like Ivan Dural painted backgrounds that Joe had drawn.
1: Yeah. Yeah, like um. in Sleeping Beauty, they, they would trace that onto a illustration board, and then Ivan painted them. Gotcha. But uh, whenever you see a picture from Sleeping Beauty, <clears throat> it will always say... <laughs> Ivan Earl. Uh,
0: <laughs> yeah, but it was based on one of your layouts.
1: Yeah, yeah. 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 I used to and, say we're the unsung heroes of animation. Yes. Nobody knows what a layout man does, and nobody really cares. It's when the pictures on the screen is what they're impressed with.
0: Well, and that, yeah. that's always the way. And and one one thing that I uh, I think is uh, is certainly worth mentioning is that uh, and Al John, you mentioned it briefly. Lighting the, the layout artist is also uh, uh, you know figuring out what the lighting is going to be uh, and oftentimes do tonal sketches. That's yeah, it. I see that's that. It. That's uh, Joe is showing us a, a story sketch love it or uh, it's a color story sketch oh, uh, wow. from, from Black cauldron
2: that's amazing.
0: It's wonderful. Yes, sir. That's fantastic, Joe. Oh, absolutely fantastic. Anyway, Joe, thank you so much for being on. Beverly, thank you for being there as well. It was really wonderful to talk to you about your entire career at Disney, uh, your World War II service to this country. You were part of the greatest generation uh, that uh, ever mobilized uh, to to, uh, win the World War.
1: Yeah,
0: <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right, no Joe. Disputes. Hey, Joe Beverly, it was great seeing you. I look forward to talking to you again in the future. Thank you so much for being on the Skull Rock podcast. Thank you, guys.
3: We, uh, send me the information so I can access the podcast? We
0: sure. will. We'll send you a link, and thank I will do. I, I will do that tomorrow via email, Beverly. But hold on a minute. Okay.
3: This, one more. Th- <laughs>
1: one more thing.
2: Always one more. This thing. is a caricature. All right.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. That's a <laughs> caricature. Now who's, who's Dolly
3: is? Dolly is now Jolie. <laughs>
0: ah so uh joe is showing us a caricature of him as a uh, fair folk that, that's uh, awesome one of the sequences that was heavily trimmed and almost cut out completely from the film all righty joe thank you thank you beverly have a wonderful rest of your weekend and we'll talk to you soon
3: okay bye-bye
1: okay. Bye-bye.
0: bye-bye take care bye-bye
3: anytime Hey guys, you ever seen that really old movie, ah, Empire Strikes Back? You know that part ah, where they're on the snow planet ah, with the walking things? Gold Rock
2: Podcast. Maybe the kid's on to something. All right, Dave, what are we doing for uh, what are we doing for New Year's? <laughs> You're going to well, be you in know, New York. <laughs> I, I, I,
0: I have to say, I'm going to I'm going to have a quiet New Year's uh, and uh, help uh, my mother uh, celebrate her 91st birthday on New Year's Day. Oh, wow. uh so i'm looking forward to that but hey al John this is our last show of 2021 and and really 2021 was our first full year right yeah. here at the skull rock podcast oh man funny how time flies.
2: But I'm so it really, Yeah, yeah I, It's amazing Yeah but I It's complete. I'm completely delighted Every single week When you and I get to touch base um, And thank you everyone For all the great comments That you love the show That you continue to listen That you have us on Repeat Yeah Please help us out With that It <laughs> would be amazing And thank you to all of our great guests Throughout the year In starting the show And uh, they've absolutely been Incredible and we appreciate you tuning into every single show. So thank you so much.
0: And you that. know we're we're looking forward to it. we're going to be changing things up. We're going to be doing some different things uh, in the coming new year, and that's exciting. And we've got uh, a, a battery of guests already lined up. Uh, so we hope that you keep coming back uh, and enjoying the Skull Rock podcast. Absolutely, and don't forget to please follow us on all the
2: socials. We got Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Send Dave and Al, John, me. Talking to myself in the third person. <laughs> those emails, Podcast dot com or John at Podcast dot com. And thank you for all the great listener support. And Dave, into the new year. We go with an awesome close. Yeah,
0: this is it. Peace and love to everybody. I hope you uh, continue to enjoy the holiday season. Uh, I want to wish everybody a happy and healthy new year. Uh, Both Al, John, and I send uh, our best wishes out to all of you. And we look forward to having you back here uh, in 2022, which is just a week away, uh, right here on the Skull Rock podcast
2: i'm al john goh co-host of the disney list podcast as heard on sorcerer radio as well as skull rock podcast here with my wife Kristen. hello hello you are an earmarked agent who books disney travel vacations for people all the time give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves
3: Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney
1: parks well over 100 times, so they've got that knowledge at their hand,
3: as well as it saves them time and money.
2: Where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next Disney cruise, Disney park trip, Adventures by Disney?
3: They can contact me at theme parks and cruises
1: at gmail.com. I'm Kristen
2: Hetzel, vacation planner, world traveler, Disney foodie, and theme park fan. I'm Al John Goh, I'm the husband who's also Disney, Star Wars, and Marvel Comics fan. And together, we host a Disney List Podcast.
1: Every week, you'll hear us list our favorite things about Disney theme parks, films, shows, travel, Marvel, and Star Wars in a top 10 list, rankings,
3: and more.
2: That's an impressive list. Subscribe to the Disney List Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. You can even stream us on Sorcereradio at srsounds.com and check out our live shows on Facebook. The Disney List Podcast. Visit thedisneylist.com.